Hey, welcome to Proofing and Lies. This is a social science podcast about current events and delicious recipes. I'm Elle Rochford, a PhD candidate in sociology at Purdue University. I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. Each episode, we'll sift through the flour and the facts, bringing you tasty recipes and interesting topics. Today, we're talking jam-filled rolls and solidarity with Andrew Shriver and Professor of Public Policy, Fernando Tormos Aponte. Right now, it's just me recording this intro. Andrew is at work defending people's rights and whatnot. Parting the curtain here a little bit. We would have recorded this yesterday, but we had a massive power outage linked to a severe storm. Interestingly enough, we just did an episode on severe storms, so I'm going to put a plug for that episode in right here. So, unfortunately, we didn't get to record yesterday, which means I'm recording solo today, so this is a fresh, hot intro, uh, just like our fresh, hot rolls. Uh, So, yesterday, our stove is gas-powered, so we were still able to make our bake. We made a raspberry jam-filled roll, and uh, it's a brioche bun that we loaded up with homemade raspberry jam, and we made it because it's a great tray bake, which means you can make a full tray of it, and we did that because it's a great community dish. Um, It's something I like to make a big tray of and then uh, give to people or organizations, Um, and it's something we talk a little bit about in this episode. Uh, Ways to get involved on the local level can be something as simple as making sure people who are out doing important work uh, don't have to worry about food, right? They don't have to think about breakfast or lunch. So that was kind of our thought process behind doing a tray bake. I also really love making jam. So making jam is something I started doing during the quarantine, and it is much simpler than I expected. Um, Andrew, to my chagrin, is much better at it than I am. Uh, So I did my best uh, making a raspberry jam. Uh, It's uh, part raspberry. I use frozen raspberry because they're more affordable. A little bit of sugar and a little bit of water. And you just boil it out and let it set. We didn't let ours set long enough before we loaded it into our dough. We used a brioche dough that makes amazing cinnamon rolls. Uh, So essentially, this recipe is a cinnamon roll recipe that I swapped out jam for the cinnamon filling. Uh, I have some loved ones who hate cinnamon, and so this is a fun twist on a great breakfast roll um, that doesn't include any cinnamon. I think you could put a little more sugar into it if you wanted to make it a sweeter roll. Andrew said he would want his with vanilla ice cream or whipped cream, and I think those would be great additions. Um, It's not overly sweet. I think you could add more jam or some kind of topping if you wanted it to be more of a dessert roll. At breakfast, I don't love something overly sweet. So this is a nice way to get uh, kind of the sense of a jam and toast without any effort at all. Um, So I would say for ease, um, it is a yeasted dough and it's brioche. So you want to let it rise over time and chill it so that you develop flavors. So I would say for ease, it's maybe a six. Um, I would say it's one of my favorite recipes. I've been making a lot of cinnamon rolls um, and a lot of breakfast kind of bakes uh, since quarantine started. So I would, you know, 10 out of 10, do it again. I'll probably do this exact version again um, and experiment with a more set jam. 
we did have a little bit of trouble rolling it up. We had some jam squidge out, which is why you want a more set jam. And the finished product looks a little visceral, I'll say, because the raspberry jam combined with the swirls uh, makes it a little medical looking. Um, I think if I did this again, I might make the rolls into buns and just pinch them sealed with jam inside. Um, so you get like a burst of jam filling. We'll put up the recipe that we used for both the brioche and the jam on our Instagram. So you can follow us on Instagram for at proofing and lies. Uh, but look at the Instagram pics and let us know what you think. It's a little less fun to riff without Andrew here. So we're going to jump right into the interview. Uh, we talk a bit about what it means when we say things like intersectionality and identity politics. Uh, both of them have kind of been taken by the, the general public and they've been used in ways that the writers don't necessarily agree with um, and in some cases openly oppose. And one of the great things about these theories is the author of these theories, they're alive and they're on Twitter. I highly recommend following these different uh, authors on Twitter. Uh, Barbara Smith is active. She's really central to the concept of identity politics. Kimberly Crenshaw uh, coined intersectionality. She's a legal scholar. Uh, different women associated with the Kambahi River Collective um, they're all excellent, excellent people to read their work, um, but to follow along with their ongoing uh, contemporary conversations about their work. I really enjoy seeing what they're up to now and seeing how they think about their concepts and how they react to how their concepts are being used. So scholarship and political theory is a living thing. Um, so to me, it's interesting to see how it develops and how it's responded to. Um, and in some cases, how the people who wrote the theories are responding in real time to the ways their theories are misused. Overall, it is a great conversation. Um, I had a lot of fun doing this interview, and I hope you have a lot of fun listening to this interview. Hi, we're here with Professor Tormos Aponte, Professor of Public Policy at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And we're here to talk about the election. We're here to talk about solidarity and what you can be doing post-election. It's good to have you. Thank you for hey, coming. it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, you write really extensively about solidarity, um, intersectional solidarity and active solidarity. And I wondered if you could give kind of our audience kind of a brief definition of, of how you think about solidarity. Definitely, definitely. So, you know, for, for me and I think a lot of my uh, collaborators who have been involved in you know, thinking how do we get people to work together towards a specific goal, right? Or just work together, even if we can't even agree on a goal. And that's a thing. Like sometimes we just work together even before knowing what we're working for. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So how do we achieve that, right? Especially when we have people who are so different involved in these efforts to try to coordinate any kind of action. And there are all sorts of theories around how we can achieve that. But we're really excited and interested about this theory that has emerged from the activism of Black and Mestiza women specifically, uh, but not exclusively. Others have engaged in this kind of activism, which we call intersectional solidarity. 
So what does intersectional solidarity mean? Essentially, we're interested in, in a form of solidarity that is really an ongoing process, right? Like, we don't think that solidarity is this one thing that you achieve at a particular point in time and that you're good for the rest of your days and you're always going to be able to coordinate your actions in spite of all your differences. No, it's an ongoing process. It's an on, ongoing negotiation. And the, the idea behind these processes and negotiations is to create ties, right? And, and create some collaborative ties and relationships across our differences, across social group differences, so different identities, right? And one way in which we do this is by negotiating the differences that we have and the, specifically the power differences, right? So we come into these collaborations differently situated. Some of us may have more power in society than others, but in order to be able to sustain this kind of solidarity and to promote this kind of solidarity, we think that we need to negotiate those power differences and to reallocate them, to put more power in the hands of those who in our society don't have it, don't have as much of it. So it's, it's definitely full of challenges. And, and that's one of the things that we talk about. What are the challenges uh, of, of achieving this kind of relationship building uh, process? And what are the benefits of doing so? And we really think it's the key to achieving uh, social change in different contexts. So we're involved in efforts to try to uh, showcase instances in which this form of solidarity has, has worked. So it's more of a, a relationship than an achievement. Absolutely, and like any relationship, you know, you don't just decide that you're going to be in a relationship and all of a sudden you're in a relationship for the rest of your days. You know, it takes a lot of work and there are days in which you're in relationship with folks and you kind of question those relationships or you just don't feel as great about the relationship one day as you do the next. But ultimately, we think that these relationships that people develop across their differences uh, and amongst themselves can be really impactful for our general uh, aspiration to bring them out about some kind of progressive social change in our lives and in the lives of those who have been uh, completely neglected by public policy, and who have been neglected by social movements themselves, which have developed these agendas that don't always put at the forefront the needs of, of those who fall in into these intersections of different forms of being marginalized, right? So that's why it's called intersectional solidarity is because it's prioritizing the issues of those who are marginalized by virtue of being in more than one social group, right? So it's not just about trying to address issues of, of social class, for instance. It's about those who find themselves in a disadvantaged social class as well as you know, a, a racial or ethnic minority, among other kinds of disadvantage, and their lives are really shaped by the combination of those two things and not just one of them. So th we think that requires a specific form of developing relationships, and that's what we call it uh, intersectional solidarity. Can you, uh, can you talk about an example, um, like you had mentioned, of, of this playing out in real life? Definitely. I'll give you one of the samples that is more, I guess, um, uh, present in my mind because um, I've just been really invested in, in, in studying and working around that uh, recently. I guess I, I should start by saying that I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. I was, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico and lived there until I moved to the United States to do my graduate work. 
But before moving, I developed an interest in social movements there in Puerto Rico, um, where it's kind of inevitable. You know, you really have to think about movements and, and politics because it's really just pervasive across all kinds of aspects of social life. Even if you wanted to ignore it, you cannot. So as I was involved in social movement politics down there, I became really involved in the student movement. And, you know, I think that as I was involved in the student movement, I started becoming aware of, of my own privilege and, and my own power that I had in, in that movement and that there were friends who did not have that kind of power. And I started questioning, like, what was I doing in that movement that was sort of making it harder for those who were uh, marginalized to, to become leaders in that movement? And I realized that the movement was really starting to break with this tradition of being male dominated. It was looking to promote. It. So the student movement at my time, it was 2010 when we occupied the University of Puerto Rico for 62 days. Imagine a university in the United States occupied for 62 days and no operations taking place. Like it was, I think a lot of people can't imagine that. I don't think I would have imagined that before I was a part of it. So as we were going through this process, the student movement elects a, a negotiating committee that included a representative from an organization that represented, uh, it was a committee against transphobia and homophobia. It also had like uh, a lot of, it had like seats already allocated to women activists. And I was like thinking, I think this is bringing the movement some form of strength that it didn't have before. I was thinking, you know, This, this movement managed to occupy this campus for so long in spite of the constant repression from the police, from the government, directly from government who would address the students through press conferences and everything. You know, we, I thought, man, the only way we're really sustaining this is because we, we have a strong group of folks here and we're really pulling support from sectors that in the past didn't feel compelled to, to be part of a, of, of a movement like this or to agree on tactics that were as confrontational and controversial and as hard to sustain as disruptive action for 62 days. So I thought, man, okay, this is, this is something here. I think there's, this is something. So I, I went to grad school and I started reading about this and I was like, oh, this is a new, this move to become more inclusive, uh, to really promote the leadership of marginalized groups is, is really a, a part of a tradition. And I, I started thinking, okay, let's tr what's the history of this tradition? And again, I went to black feminism and mystica feminism where I read things like the Combahee River Collective Statement, which is free and online. And it was written in the 70s. And it was saying, look, we black women feel that we were excluded from the civil rights movement as well as feminist movements. And by doing so, these movements are really neglecting the issues of black women. Uh, and, 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 This is, is, this is an issue because if these movements manage to accomplish some kind of policy change, the policy that they might accomplish, that they might get passed, might still not address the very issues that these movements were created for. So it will be sort of an incomplete sort of achievement. So in that sense, you know, I think it was my lived experience in, in, in movements that drove me to that. And in the process, I developed a great relationship with an activist and, and movement leader down in, in Puerto Rico. Her name is Shariana Ferrer Nunez. And after the experience that she had in the student movement, which I thought was like a little school for us, and I have some work on how movements can become a form of, a, of learning, 
um, you know, Shariana then decides that the left in Puerto Rico more generally, so the progressive sector in Puerto Rico more generally, hadn't really sort of caught on to this move uh, within the student movement of becoming more inclusive. And in fact, when she started doing work with feminist groups and she would say, why don't we have this occupation of this major highway, uh, a women's strike, uh, a women's stoppage, and, you know, folks in the left were saying, nah, the conditions aren't there for this. You know, they had their own analysis of when it would be a good time to, to have a tactic like this. So, you know, women, and specifically black women in the case of Shariana, you know, they were just shut down. They weren't given the credit of having, like, any sort of insight on or, or analysis, contribution to their analysis of is it a good time to develop this tactic or not. They kept getting shut down. Well, they definitely had the last laugh because they end up saying, you know what, men in the left, if you don't want to follow our lead, if you don't want to listen to our ideas, our strategies, our analysis, that's okay. We will build our own movement. And they did. They built this organization called La Colectiva Feminista en Construcción. And they really adopted intersectional solidarity principles. Black women led, they started reading theory movement generated theory they started and not just theory developed in the global north they were like they were reading like theories on decolonialism or reading anti-imperialism readings coming from those who experienced imperialism not just from the metropolis and they started building people power they started building massive uh power to the point where they were actually able to have these actions that were that were really broad and they were starting to accomplish things. They managed to oust uh, a mayor who had a history of sexual assault. And then they ousted a second mayor who was a very powerful figure. And all of a sudden, they were like, okay, you know, we got power. And others were starting to notice, okay, these folks that, by the way, are black women who we shut down are all of a sudden accomplishing all of this. Well, they then set their sights on the executive branch and they started going to the, to the governor's mansion. And they were saying, look, there's a gender-based violence crisis in Puerto Rico. We need you to declare a state of emergency and to apportion and allocate resources to attend and address this, this emergency. Nothing. No responses, no nothing. And then, you know, they managed to get celebrities involved. They did an occupation of the road that goes all the way into the governor's mansion. And this occupation, and Shariana explained this to me, these are her, her words, they wanted to build and design a playbook that others in, in, in Puerto Rico could adopt. And it, it ended up becoming a playbook because a year after that occupation, hundreds of thousands uh, mobilized to oust the governor of Puerto Rico in a movement that was very much marked by this sort of intersectional solidarity approach, something that would have you know, been thought of as unthinkable a few years before, five years before, because they were getting shut down. I see the power in that approach, particularly in the case of Puerto Rico, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm writing a lot about it, including writing with uh, the activists that are involved in that, because they are authors of these ideas, right? This is a, this is a, these ideas, these ideas do not come from academia. They mostly come from movements. And in certain cases, they come from 
folks who have lived in between academia and movement politics. And that's part of the reason for why we have these, you know, these theories is because they've enacted these sort of relationships across these different uh, spheres. And, and, you know, now we can consume that thanks to their work. So I think it's very important for them to then be recognized as authors of that as well. So it's a challenge to, to, to author things with activists because they're actually doing work outside of academia. Writing is not what they do predominantly, but they see the value in doing it. So, so we've done it. And, you know, that's, that's just one example that, that is very, very present in my mind, but there's so many others that we can talk about. Like, for example, and I'll stop here. The Black Lives Matter movement is another example of an intersectional uh, led uh, movement that, in my opinion, unsurprisingly, because I've been doing this for a while, but to many, surprisingly, mo- had the largest mobilization in U.S. history as an intersectionally led uh, movement. I think that's just remarkable, remarkable. A lot of folks said this was not worth pursuing. Diversity and inclusion in movements and, and, and intersectionality in movements was not worth pursuing. A lot of folks said that we were too concerned with these questions as opposed to actually getting what we wanted. Uh, so for a while, we had to battle them too and tell them, no, this is a good idea. Uh, and, and then it worked. So many, many great examples. And, and, and it's, it's a testament to the impact that these activists had, that we now have all of these great examples. Well, I'm always, um, I, I also work in, in social movements, and I'm always kind of smiling at like solo authored pieces, theorizing about movements. And when you look at the kinds of things that people active in the movements produce, they're, they're always collaborative. They're always thinking about who's centered and shifting the center kind of constantly. Um, so it's interesting to see the different kind of scholarship produced by people who work with activists versus people who are just in academics. Absolutely. I mean, uh, just recently, uh, a wonderful scholar, uh, Alden Morris, uh, just just uh, accepted a Lifetime Achievement Award at a, at a social movement conference. It happens every year, and essentially, it's it's a way to celebrate those who have moved the movement, the, the the social movement field forward. And you know, one of the main messages that Alden Morris delivered during his acceptance speech was, "Look, if we want to learn more about movements, we need to." spend more time in them. And I, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that it's a message that um, is, is well accepted uh, in those circles because historically it hasn't been. Lots of thoughts on that. So one of the things that, that I notice is increasingly in the public, like in the mainstream, intersectionality misused as a word for diversity. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what intersectionality means and how you use it in your work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that to put it in very social science terms and then I'll scale it back, I think that diversity is a necessary but not sufficient condition to achieving uh, an intersectional solidarity approach. I mean, you could not achieve this form of solidarity without diversity, but it's certainly not enough. And there have been a lot of folks, movement folks included, and specifically really, who have said, how does it help us? to put a black or brown face uh, in front of things that continue to oppress black and brown people. Uh, what the value of diversity if it doesn't actually do anything for those who they claim to represent? 
And I think that's a really important point. And it's an, as a critique that I think it's increasingly achieving its aim of, of breaking with these celebrations of diversity, right? So when we talk about intersectionality, we're really talking about recognizing that one's lived experience and one's experience of oppression is not only the result of one of our identities, like being uh, a Latino, is the result of, of, of being a part of more than one social group, right? So it's being part of the global South, being a Latino, but then there's also certain privileges and, and that, is lived, that is a lived experience. It is this constellation of different experiences that, that are shaped by our social position in this world. So it breaks with traditional ways of looking at disadvantage and oppression as just being something that comes from you being working class. Of course, that matters, right? The working class uh, matters. Class shapes a lot of the ways in which we experience life, but gender and ethnicity and race also do so, right? So intersectionality, what it is pushing us to do is to recognize that our oppression and, and, privileges, and privileges come from this intersection and interplay of the different identities that we hold and identify with. And that has implications for policies, how we design public policies, these efforts, these courses of action to address social issues, but it also has implications for how we go organize movements, these organized efforts to change policies and political systems. So that's generally what we're talking about when we talk about um, intersectionality. Well, and this kind of leads into another one that I think is commonly misused and that has, um, I think, a uh, almost a negative connotation in, in politics, but can you talk a little bit about identity politics and what that means? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because I left that out of my response to your previous question. You know, it's interesting. You know, identity politics, its first known mention was in the Kambahi River Collective Statement, which is considered to be one of the founding texts, one of the texts that really articulated the notion of intersectionality, even though they did not coin the term. The term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. But the idea behind the term had already been articulated by activists and scholars. In the case of the Cumberland River Collective, a lot of them were scholar activists like Barbara Smith, right? Um, there were folks who, or Audre Lorde, right? These are folks who were really living at the intersection of identities as well as academia and social movement politics. In this statement, they mention identity politics. Um, and, and much like the word diversity, identity politics has been taken to mean something that those who first mentioned it say it isn't. So some folks have used identity politics to refer to this interest in having diverse faces in leadership of different types of organizations like government, uh, nonprofits, corporations, uh, education, etc. And it has generated a lot of critique for the same reasons that diversity in itself has generated critique. Identity politics does not, as, as conceived as just diversity, 
does not do much in terms of advancing social causes just by itself. It matters. We have to recognize that diversity matters, right? It's a necessary but not sufficient condition to, to achieving social change. Diversity matters. We know this because we've studied it. We know that having women in politics, we know that having black and brown people in politics, black women, women of color, Latina women in politics has an impact. When people see those folks in power, that has an impact. They see themselves in that position. So it will matter that someone like Kamala Harris will be the first woman vice president, the first black woman vice president, uh, and many other firsts, right? It matters. However, a lot of folks have also criticized someone like Kamala Harris because uh, she has a history of, of pursuing cases when she was a prosecutor had incarcerated people of color. And she, for many, has served as an example of why diversity matters, but it's not enough. So identity politics has, has garnered this kind of, of, of critique whereby people say, look, you know, you can put as many uh, black and brown and women faces uh, in front of your organizations and your firms and your, your institutions, but unless you adopt policies that address our issues, then it's, it, it really doesn't advance our cause. So those who generated the term take offense in its current uses, with its current usage. They never, they never reduced identity politics. And when you read that, that text, the Combat Hero Recollective Statement, they never reduced identity politics to diversity. No. In fact, they argued for an agenda for social movements that prioritized the issues of folks uh, who were um, s s marginalized groups, right? So they've really tried to push back. There's still a lot to do in res with respect to pushing back against that uh, notion of identity politics, unfortunately. I mean, as some folks, some folks call it culture wars. As, as recently as I think yesterday, uh, they were using that term in CNN. So, you know, this is still very, right now, at the core of the soul of the Democratic Party, some folks think that moving left means having more Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's in their leadership. But even someone like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez would say, no, it's not just about me. It's about the policies that we're pushing for that would help people like me. So the faces without the policies is not identity politics in the way in which folks like the Cumberhee River Collective originally conceived of that concept. Well, I think it's interesting because so many of the people involved in that work are still alive and they're all on Twitter now. So it's, it is amazing to, to follow uh, these women on Twitter and see them kind of push back actively. It is beautiful to see, right? It's kind of... Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see that they were doing that. And more and more, they, they, they have a lot of followers. So I think this is a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good moment in terms of pushing back against that. So I, I'm certainly very excited. And we have some such fantastic leaders in movement politics, as well as in academia, who, who are putting that, that effort. So I, I was just kind of thinking about um, the notion of diversity being necessary, but, but not sufficient. Coupled with the fact that, you know, this country is... Uh, still has a, a massive problem with segregation, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of, I mean, the city that we're in, Cleveland, is one of the most segregated in, in the country, but really everywhere, you know, a, a lot of American issues, I think, stem from the fact that a lot of, of 
for instance, white people just don't know any people of color or don't live with any people of color. And I guess the crux of my question is, is, is that going to be fatal or have you seen? Absolutely. Have you seen things that, that suggest maybe we're overcoming that or, or pushing beyond that? Or is, is that going to be just, you know, death to the American, American left? I'll start by saying that it can be fatal. And we know this because of history. About three years ago, I, I, I started reading the great work of a social movement scholar. His name is uh, David Cunningham at the uh, Washington University in St. Louis. He's a scholar of the Ku Klux Klan. And he asked the very important question of how did the Klan, after almost dying, experience this sudden resurgence? So he, he then delves deep into that. Uh, thankfully, he's this white guy who can interview a lot of people who would not want to be interviewed by me. <laughs> and uh, he has this fascinating perspective. And it's the following. I think it makes total sense. He says, look. One of the reasons for why the Klan succeeded in recruiting so many people is because you had these segregated workplaces, you had these segregated neighborhoods, and you had all these people living next to each other, having lunch together at the factory. And guess what they talked about when they were like in their picnics or at the park or at the factory having lunch? They were recruiting more and more and more people with this agenda of hate. This proximity, this interaction uh, definitely allowed them to recruit. There are interaction and proximity is, of course, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it could give you something like the Klan, but on the other hand, it can give you something as beautiful as solidarity, which is what Rick Fantasia uh, described in his great book, Cultures of Solidarity, where he argues that one of the reasons for why you had these major strikes in different factories was because you had these folks interacting and building community with each other and just building a sense of collective that when it came down to say, look, we have to lock down this factory and we have to hold this down, keep it together because they're going to come at us with all kinds of different strategies and tricks. They managed to do so. They had, they had built that solidarity through those interactions. So I definitely think that we need more of this uh, interaction across uh, differences. Um, the pandemic creates a lot of challenges for that, right? Like right now, our interactions are not just, uh, you know, segregated in physical spaces. There's a sense of virtual spatial segregation, if that makes sense. Now, to get into a meeting, you need a password, you need a link. And like, I think in a way, this is helping to create and generate these, these, these silos and, and, and also generating a lot of exclusion. So we have some challenges right now. I'm also, I'm also feeling a lot of hope and, and critical hope, as Paulo Freire would, would say. Um, you know, and, and this is why I'm feeling a lot of hope. And this comes from Barbara Ransby. Barbara Ransby. Barbara Ransby gave this fantastic webinar a few months ago where she said, she, she was being asked about, you know, what is, what is it most surprising and impactful to you about the uprising around Black Lives Matter? And she said, look, what's more surprising and impactful to me is that knowing that there's a deadly virus, that you can die by virtue of coming out of your home, we witness the largest mobilization in U.S. history. That has to mean something, right? Like people are willing to put their lives at risk 
for the lives of others. We saw that white public opinion towards Black Lives Matter improved significantly during this uprising. I feel like that matters, right? And that happened in, 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 in a context, in a time in which we, we thought it was going to be impossible. The people were not going to risk their lives. It was a pandemic. We thought that all activism was going to be virtual now, that everything we were going to do was to be like trolling our elected officials on some kind of Facebook live, you know, like, or, or, or I don't, that's what we thought we would do, signing petitions. But no, people said the heck with this virus. We're going to go out because if they can't live, then no one should be living uh, at peace. If, and there should not be peace without justice. Uh, so it's definitely a difficult time. We were experiencing uh a, a partisan polarization in the United States that is, is in a sense, historic, right? Like the kind of polarization we're witnessing. I mean, just today I read that more than 80% of, uh, in a recent uh, survey, more than 80% of Republicans surveyed believed that the outcome, of, the outcome of the U.S. election was not legitimate. This is a big cleavage for 80% of almost 50% of the electorate to believe that this was an illegitimate election. These, these institutions are resting upon a very fragile uh, foundation. So um, we're really uh, facing a really challenging time. But at the same time, we have these major movements that are well-constituted, that delivered things that would have seemed unthinkable as um, you know, flipping a state like Georgia. While you have folks on the, while you have folks on the left blaming Black Lives Matter and defunding the police, or the left for for not doing better in the election, you have you have others saying, "Look, without this, you wouldn't have won Georgia." So shut up. Right. I'm certainly on the latter. Registration alone. Absolutely, uh, and you know we have research shows that the share of Democratic vote has gone up in part because of civil rights activism, the work of Omar Wasso. Uh, we have research that public opinion towards movements and protests through the work of, of others. Um, so this is an opportune moment to, to address these, these issues of polarization, racial and partisan polarization. Um, can I ask, since we, we're talking about the election, can I ask a, a dumb question as someone who does not know very much about Puerto Rico or Puerto Rican politics, uh, which is that I did see there was a the, the seemingly non-binding statehood referendum. Could you, do you know about that or put a, can you put that in context? Can you talk about that? Would you mind? Absolutely. I'll, I'll start by saying that um, it's, it was a historic uh, election for the Puerto Rican left. Uh, and I, I have a piece that is about to come out with the Washington Post, uh, the monkey cage section about about the victories of the left in Puerto Rico and where I intentionally neglected to make any mention of statehood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason is statehood is, is not an issue that mobilizes either the left or the right. We have colleagues within the left who believe in statehood and those within the left who believe in independence. I believe in independence. I think that traditionally statehood has garnered uh, more right-wing, actually. Statehood started as a very progressive movement. A lot of progressives believed that statehood was a way in which Puerto Rico could first achieve civil rights. This was back 
1898, when the U.S. invades Puerto Rico, some thought that maybe, contrary to Spain, which had not wanted to grant a series of uh, civil rights, that the U.S. would. It did not take them more than a year to realize that civil rights were not coming through uh, the United States. And the independence movement starts growing and growing. The U.S. doesn't like this because Puerto Rico as a colony is a very profitable possession to have. The United States extracts a lot of capital from Puerto Rico, not just the United States. Global capital extracts a lot of capital. Puerto Rico is one of the most profitable tax havens in the globe, in the globe, full stop, Puerto Rico. So for many, neither independence nor statehood makes sense. And it's not for Puerto Ricans because Puerto Ricans overwhelmingly want to end their colonial status. They are, however, pretty evenly split between statehood and something else. And I say something else because among those who do not believe in statehood, you have those who want some kind of modified arrangement with the United States, and you have those who just want independence. Um, so, you know, I think that statehood proponents out of desperation have gone into the United States and have said, friends, fellow Americans, we have constituted a majority. You should give us statehood. To which their so-called fellow Americans have either completely ignored this claim or laughed them out of the room. It is not taken seriously for many reasons, one of which is that among Republicans, statehood is seen as a radical left proposal, uh, very much like packing the Supreme Court. They see it as a way of shifting the balance of power in Congress. So for Republicans, which you would need, by the way, um, to grant statehood to Puerto Rico, this is a non-starter. But... You know, I think statehood proponents have been dishonest. They have gone to uh, poor Puerto Ricans specifically, poor Puerto Ricans specifically, and have convinced many through a discourse that proposes that Puerto Rico, without the United States, would be chaotic. That, and they use this sort of red-baiting discourse of, Puerto Rico would be as bad as Cuba. Puerto Rico would be as bad as Venezuela. Puerto Rico, they would, they say, Puerto Rico would be a third world country. To which those who do not believe in statehood have responded and said, I'm sorry, but you, could you explain to me why then, if we are under the United States, we're experiencing all these crises? I mean, couldn't the United States, the richest and most, most powerful country in the world, just forgive our debt and maybe, just maybe, invests in healthcare and education as opposed to adopting a, overs a fiscal oversight board with complete control over Puerto Rico's finances that has mandated the closure of hospitals and schools, which of course led to deaths after Hurricane Maria, which completely neglected Puerto Rico after disasters. What is it that we get from the United States that, that you have promised this, this prosperity? It's just not there. And I think this election, in a sense, has, has been successful because it has allowed many to question the discourse and the promises of the main pro-statehood party.
whose governor was just ousted uh, a year ago, but through many tricks, including things that I personally believe were uh, illegitimate, but not illegal, two different things, they managed to uh, win the, the governor race, just barely. But they went from having more than 50% of the vote to now only having 30% of the vote. And the left combined now has 20-something percent of the vote. All of a sudden, the left has garnered some strength. They elected at-large representatives, at-large senators. They almost won the capital city mayorship, a very visible uh, mayorship to capture because some folks may remember who was the past mayor. It was Carmen Julian Cruz, who was very outspoken against uh, Donald Trump. Imagine, and even uh, someone further to the left of that, at that, at winning that seat, some say the only reason that he didn't win it was because of fraud. It remains to be seen because they're still counting votes because they just found like 180 boxes full of votes that miraculously weren't there uh, on the night of the election. So it is a mess, as you now know. <laughs> and, you know, I think that unfortunately, a lot of colleagues and friends in the United States have fallen for this dishonest discourse that statehood is about equality and civil rights when in my personal opinion and in the opinion of a rising number of puerto ricans it really isn't well i was gonna say yeah because i mean i i it's it's definitely a, a blind spot for me and i definitely have heard it about it largely in the context you were talking about of, of you know republicans sending out mailers that like this would be the you know the rise of communism would be brought about by Puerto Rican statehood. So I think, yeah, I think in my head that was... And by independence. It's like communism is coming. Republicans think communism is coming through statehood. Uh, Pro-statehood supporters think communism is coming through independence. We're, we're doomed to communism, apparently, which I'm sure makes uh, the left very happy. Right, that would be fantastic if it, if it were true, I suppose. <laughs> but, um, exactly. The problem is that it isn't. Right. Right. And so I guess that's, I mean, I, I guess even in the American, you know, left, uh, I think statehood's considered a much more left option than, than it sounds like it really is. Yeah. But fortunately, I think that there are friends and colleagues, you know, that's part of the problem of the lack of, you know, uh, inclusion in the, in the U.S. left. Right. If the U.S. left would be a little more inclusive, it would realize that Puerto Ricans organize in the United States for years, right, for years, it's not new, have always been pro-independence. Yeah. The left in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican left within the United States have never been pro-statehood. Well, I feel like it's just a struggle to get people on the left to understand there's no such thing as the Latino vote any more than there's a European vote. Yeah. That's been the thing that's... Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to that point about the Latino vote, you know, it's funny because a friend of mine, he's all, he's, he's like out of my, all, all of my scholar friends, he's the one who hates the diversity discourse as diversity matters the most because he sees it like as this sort of neoliberal celebration of diversity and nothing else. He's been looking at all these analysis pieces about why Latinos voted for Trump, which many of them are, are, are essentially like stopping at saying Latinos are diverse. And that's it. And my friend is like, okay, but like, what else? Like, you don't just vote for Trump because you're diverse. Like, right. what about like the differences among Latinos make them vote for Trump? And they're really good. Ex I, I, I'm be part in part. I'm, I'm glad I have a friend like that because he pushes me to read a little 
further into things. You know, some folks have said, look, it's part, part, of the, part of the question here is organizing. Are you really organizing that vote or are, are the Trump supporters organizing it much better? And if you read the work of scholars like Theda Scottspole, you would realize that because she's been researching right-wing groups, they're really well organized. They're really good organizers. They have a local presence. And this goes to your question and interest in um, what should happen between electoral cycles. The right knows what to do. They have a local presence in various, in various states, even states they don't think they could ever win. They still organize those states. And that's part of the reason for why they keep mobilizing votes. People need to stop thinking that you know folks vote by virtue of agreeing with you or hating Trump. No. Voting requires a little more than that. You need to mobilize people. I mean, I live in a, in a predominantly uh, black neighborhood in Baltimore. My polling location, which I can see from my house, closed because of the pandemic. Guess what? Everyone in my neighborhood had to walk a little further. The United States closed so many polling locations recently. And guess which locations they closed? The ones that were closer to Black and Latino people. So, you know, we shouldn't be, like, necessarily going down these rabbit holes of, like, they're so diverse. You know, some of them are Trump fanatics. No. I mean, there's structural reasons for why they couldn't vote. Voter suppression being one of them. Sorry, I'm still thinking about the Voting Rights Act. But what does it mean to, to organize? If you're not someone in these spheres, if you're not active right now, what, what does it look like to organize and how do you get started? I think that's a great question. I mean, I feel like organizers often, I was listening to um, Angela Davis the other day saying how she became an organizer. And she was trying to trace it back, trace it back. And, you know, I think one of the messages that she she wanted to to share during that interview was that her lived experience drove her to organizing. Like, you know, she, she, she told the story about how her mother had to take a friend of hers to identify the body of her son after a lynching. Angel Davis said, organizing was just what you did when you live through things like these, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you have to survive and organizing is a, is a mechanism for survival, right? Only the people save the people. That's what a lot of folks have been saying, you know, like you need to, <laughs> Frederick Douglass, power can seize nothing without demand. You know, the United States is not going to be better uh, by chance or by any sort of like magic. No, people will organize it to be better. And, you know, I think, when when we become active in in, in politics, we need, we need to think about active act activity in politics as more than just voting. And by voting, I mean more than just voting in presidential elections, local elections, midterm elections. All these matter. You can change who's the district attorney who may bring in a different platform of. That breaks with the tradition of mass incarceration, that does not prosecute low-level criminal offenses, or that does not look at uh, filing charges for, for things like uh, uh, drug possession and things of that nature, which has predominantly affected uh, people of color in the United States. Those local elections matter. We know this in St. Louis. We know this in Philly. 
We know this in Chicago. We know this in many places where these local victories matter. But beyond voting, uh, I think we need to ask ourselves, what do we do? What are we good at? What do we feel comfortable with? I mean, not, every, not all of us are meant to be on the streets. Not all of us can. It doesn't make sense for all of us to be on the streets. Or maybe it makes sense for some days to come out, some days it doesn't. And that's okay. I think we need to ask ourselves, what can we contribute to organize efforts to bring about social change? And based on that sort of analysis, we look to our communities and to many organizations and see who's doing that kind of work or where could I, who has the need for what my skill is? I mean, for instance, my cousin, she's a graphic designer. She's really good at her job. And she was going out to all these protests and she was like, I'm going to all these protests, but like, I just feel like I could do more. I'm like, you're a graphic designer. And you know what? She's, she's been designing some beautiful flyers and some beautiful graphics for, for movements and movement organizations. And that's her contribution. That's what she's good at. Um, you know, maybe some of your listeners are good uh, web developers or maybe they are good at food. I mean, in Puerto Rico, there are a lot of folks, you know, speaking of, of the kind of work that you do in terms of introducing it with, with food, right? Food matters. Food is political. And in Puerto Rico, food saves life. There's a, a new emerging force within the left that has put food at the center of their work. So they are building these community pantries, these charity pantries uh, that are feeding the community. And I don't think it's a coincidence that all of a sudden you have these communities voting for the left. Where did you think they get those ideas? Right. It may have been in the interactions that they had at the food pantry. Yeah. So we can't lose that. We can't lose sight of the many ways in which we can uh, contribute. I would say that was one of the things during the pandemic, I was taking care of children. So I couldn't go out to a lot of the protests, but I started doing tray bakes. So I started making like, like, big trays and meals and stuff for organizers. I think that's a really great place to start, um, especially if you believe in a cause, but you're not confident yet, maybe go out and speak for the cause. You can do service work, free up other people's time with that kind of labor. Childcare is another big one, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, of entry points that aren't just going out on the street, which I think can intimidate a lot of people. Absolutely, I mean, and in the pandemic, one of the things I, I wrote initially about what activism may look like during a pandemic was that, you know, we have to uh, learn a lot from folks who have been involved in disability activism because for a long, long time, they've been thinking about accessibility and inclusion in, in our movements. And, you know, one of the things that they are really one of the, the groups that have a lot to teach those of us who do not identify uh, in that way. And that's why uh, an intersectional approach could be beneficial because you bring folks who have experienced that, who have worked on that, who bring that knowledge, that expertise, that creativity, that inno innovative ability. And I think in these times, we, are, we have an urgent need for, for that insight. So moving forward, I would hope that those who have been, you know, doing uh, childcare, right? Like how many folks right now are freaking out about not having childcare? And does that mean that people shouldn't have children? Absolutely not. I think we lost audio. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, 
activist groups are now making sure that they pro they provide childcare. In fact, this is pretty cool. In Baltimore, which was of course the scene of the Baltimore uprising in 2015, this time around 2020, a lot of the activism was, or was organized by youth. And then there were also these groups that said, I'll provide childcare. And you had this mass of people out there, uh, many of which were, you know, happy to be out there because they knew that their kids were taken care of. Right. And, you know, we saw the same thing in Puerto Rico, you know, uh, childcare during the ouster of the, of the governor. That's huge. That's huge. Parents should also be a part of our movements. They bring a lot of, of insight and power. So, um, but how do we get to that point where, where we have them with us? We need to attend to their needs. How do we know their needs? We need to include them in our movements. Well, I think so much of what solidarity looks like is, is a thriving community. Like you, it, it's a movement and it's social activism, but it's thinking about a group of people as, as people with families and needs and identities. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm really happy that um, efforts like these are, are now emerging with such strength because I think that given the issues that we've talked about, efforts to engage in conversation, efforts to engage in sort of explaining what we mean by certain things, uh, efforts to bridge gaps between different communities, uh, academic and non-academic, uh, they're crucial in these times. And I'm very, very excited to support uh, efforts like these and to promote them. I know that many others are extremely uh, invested and involved in this, and it's it's just really important work. So I, I'm very thankful that that you thought of me for this effort, and I'm excited to tune in to this and to the many many other episodes that you produce and will produce. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, the, the crucial question: Where can folks find you on Twitter? It's Fernando Tormos. Um, yep, that's on Twitter and that's also my website. Uh, there you can find some of my writings that we've talked about today. And, um, uh, I'm excited to engage with, with new followers and, and some of your, uh, friends and, and, and listeners. Thank you so much for coming. That yeah, was fantastic. Thank you.